Hey everyone, welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. I'm your host, Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. This week, I have our very first uh, guest in the esports sector of the sports industry. Nicole Pike is the head of the esports division over at Nielsen Research, and she um, has been with that company pretty much her entire career, which is incredible. Um, she started off uh, working with consumer packaged goods and then moved over into the video gaming space. And um, once esports really became a thing um, in the last two years in particular, um, there needed to be some standard metrics for sponsors and for ratings and things like that. So um, she over at Nielsen is uh, figuring that all out. She, Nicole uh, explains a lot of things <laughs> that I don't exactly understand about gaming um, or the esports world. And um, we have a really good conversation that encompasses not just the general landscape of esports, but gets into some of those divides that we are seeing when it comes to the number of female players. Um, you know, women within the gaming world generally and things like that. So um, I hope you enjoy it. Before we get on to that interview, though, I want to remind you all that we have the She Is Challenge going on. So as I mentioned last week, if you are at a women's um, sporting event or if you are watching a women's sporting event from like home or your tablet or whatever, take a picture, post it on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter and tag the podcast at LTPF pod on all three of those and then use the hashtag she is challenge um, and we will pick one winner um, at the end of this month to win a prize pack of sorts um, and the goal behind she is as we mentioned is to increase the viewership and attendance at women's sporting events now let's get on to the interview with Nicole Pike Hi, Nicole. Hello. How are you? I am doing well. How are you today? I'm good. It's the, the end of a holiday week, so it um, feels like we're just rolling into a holiday weekend, too. It's kind of a weird timing this year. Yeah, for sure. Um, how, uh, how's everything in Nielsen world? It's good. Um, kind of busy, but, but all good. Um, just kind of plugging away and um, kind of navigating all the, the bumps in the road that the summer brings in terms of people being out and trying to kind of cover on things. Um, but, but yeah, good time. I usually start um, by asking people how they fell in love with sports. I think I'm going to ask you, how'd you fall in love with video games? Yeah, good question. Um, I think, well, I, I guess there's probably two parts to that story. The first is just, you know, when, when I was younger, um, from a gaming standpoint, we didn't get to have any of like the consoles in our house or anything like that, but we were allowed to play computer games. So I would do a lot of the like, in San Diego and then I would beg my mom to take me to the library to sign up on the computer for all the fun games that they had. Um, so it was kind of this, you know, 
release that um, I had found from a very young age. But then um, just from a business standpoint, too, I think um, the the minute I got a taste of what it was like to work in the gaming industry, I, I think I kind of fell in love all over again in terms of just the, um, the excitement and just how fast paced the changes in technology are that kind of keep things fresh, um, you know, month to month, year to year, um, which has really you know, been why I've stayed in the business for this long. Sure. Um, did you, you know, it's, it's strange. I, I find, and this is going to be a, a theme, I think, in our conversation. I think I've mentioned this to you. The, the gaming world is so foreign to me. <laughs> and, um, and so in my mind, you were, you know, you're like, you're either an athlete and you play traditional sports. I'm going to try and use the words traditional sports or, or you, you were, you know, a gamer. Um, did you play traditional sports growing up? I did quite a bit. Um, so I was in just about every youth sport you can imagine from, you know, softball at age five all mm-hmm. the way up um, and actually played for a short time um, D1 women's soccer in college. So, And that's when you were at Xavier? I was at Xavier. Exactly. Yep. Um, so yeah, our family was a uh, huge, huge sports fans. I mean, that was really every weekend. I'm the oldest of five. So every weekend since uh, I was little all the way up to when I went to college, you know, there was something sports related, usually multiple somethings happening um, in our family. And that was kind of what, you know, what we did in our free time. Oh my gosh, five. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you grew up in Ohio, correct? Uh, the Northern Detroit area, oh, actually. Okay. So, yep, Michigan. Gotcha. Um, when you were figuring out where you were going to go to college and, and all of that, um, how did you make the decision to go to Xavier? Good question. I, I'm a big proponent after kind of going through that process of visiting a school. So, um, <laughs> oh boy. Um, yeah. So I, um, I went to a really small high school that was a pilot high school, um, in like the Detroit suburbs. And we were completely international baccalaureate, um, which is, you know, AP, but kind of the global version of that. And it was really the first time a school like that, um, was out there in the States. And so we had a lot of colleges just being like, Oh, these people are interesting. We should come and visit and talk to them about our schools. So, you know, someone from Xavier visited and kind of liked what she had to say, but I was actually planning on going to Johns Hopkins um, and was going to play soccer there. Um, I was really interested at that time of going into like the international business side of things. And they have a really great um, international relations program there. But I went and visited the campus and I just didn't like it. Obviously Hopkins is beautiful, but it was like, it, it just didn't feel like the right fit. So it was kind of like a, oh no, what do I do now moment when we got back from that trip and um, said, well, you know, I like Xavier. Let's, I was planning on applying there anyways, but let's go and check it out. And it was the exact opposite. I got there and it was just like a, this feeling of, okay, this feels right. This is the right kind of community, the right kind of people um, and, and fell in love with it. And that's that. And very happy with my decision. Do you know what it was about that community or, or the... I don't know, look and feel that really drew you to Xavier? 
Yeah, I think, you know, part of it was um, kind of a, a smaller school. I mean, Hopkins is a absolutely beautiful campus, um, but I think just kind of the, the small feel. Um, it also didn't, Xavier doesn't have um, any Greek life. And I think for me, that was a little bit of, um, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily planning on participating in college. So the fact that I didn't even have to make a decision, I could just kind of go there and everyone was kind of, um, you know, on the same playing field when it came to just social life and all that, I think was really appealing. But I think more than anything, it was just like, I remember being on campus with my mom and even just in the areas around and like people were just so friendly and just smiles constantly. And it just, it felt very warm and I hadn't necessarily gotten that on my other visits. And so it was kind of like, it, it was a good fit. And it was also a little bit of, you know, I grew up Midwest and I, I think, you know, kind of that Midwest feeling shown through more at Xavier than some of the other places I looked at. So. I think that makes sense. Um, you were really interested. You just mentioned and, um, even at Xavier, you, you ended up getting your degree in international affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, what drew you to that area of study? Yeah, I think a few things. I mean, certainly that the high school that I mentioned, kind of that international baccalaureate, um, they put a really strong emphasis on foreign language and, and just kind of understanding of foreign cultures. And so I think that really brought the um, the interest in the international piece um, in. And, and I knew that was something that uh, I was really you know wanting to incorporate. I, I also ended up kind of double majoring in Spanish. Um, and I, I wish I used it more today, but um, I can definitely, uh, I, I can definitely, you know, use that one needed these days. Um, I think that was part of it. And then really, it's kind of interesting to reflect back what I thought that I was going to go into originally was is more on like the political side of things, um, which was also why Hopkins was really appealing being close to DC. Um, and, and so I had kind of you know, that was really just interesting to me, just the the whole kind of idea of being in the mix of shaping kind of how our country and how our world moves forward, I think um, was, was really appealing. But then, um, you know, we could talk about, I kind of partway through college had as part of my courses, some um, marketing classes and it was kind of like a light bulb went off of like, okay, this, you know, I still love politics. I still wake up every morning watching Morning Joe and MSNBC, like that sort of thing. But um, the the kind of what I want to do day to day and how I can make an impact. I think once I started taking those marketing classes, it was kind of clear that the business side of things um, was really attractive and exciting too. From the marketing standpoint, was it the the creative aspect of the marketing or is it more the the data insight part of marketing that you think you were drawn to? You know, I think what it actually was at first was um, I really loved the consumer behavior side of marketing and kind of thinking about how people make decisions, how people interact with the things that they like, why they buy what they buy, what makes them buy more, what makes them buy less, um, kind of that decision process and how that interacts with um, the businesses who are trying to sell them all those things uh, was really interesting to me. It's kind of like that, what makes consumers tick tagline um, that just to me was like, oh, you can, you know, you can marry the data side of things with kind of that human, like what makes us the way we are side of things. Which ends up, you know, working out beautifully with what you ended up 
with your career. How did um, how did you get your start as a research analyst with Bases? Yeah, so you're you're right. I mean, it dovetailed perfectly into that. Um, so basically, I uh, my first job out of school was with Bases, which was you know eventually folded into the Nielsen family. So I have been with Nielsen in some way, shape, or form since the very first day I started working as a professional, um, which is extremely rare these days. So rare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and we can talk about you know why that's been really successful and valuable to me. Um, but, but, you know, basically that part of the company was doing exactly what I just said. So it was doing new product testing, sales forecasting and, and research around um, products that were coming out with consumers, consumer surveys around, you know, do you like this product? Why do you like this product? Um, you know, helping through the view of a consumer to understand how successful a product will be and how companies and, and at this point, Point. I was working in the CPG space specifically, but how companies can um, put out products that are going to be successful and put out products that ultimately people are going to want to buy and how we could help them kind of make that the best product that it could be um, given consumers need state. So it really kind of tied all those things together nicely, minus the international bit. I definitely started out uh, very domestic focused and things. Um, but, but otherwise really kind of combined everything that I loved about what I had learned at school into, uh, into a job. So that acronym that you just used to describe the space, can you, um, tell us what that means? The CPG? Yes. Sure. So consumer packaged goods. So I basically like to say anything you could buy in a grocery store. Okay. Yeah. I sometimes, um, we get caught up in the acronyms and, and, you know, people listening might not understand what that means at first. So yeah, that's a good point. And from a, um, from a, I guess that also kind of speaks to now moving over into more of the sports side of things. Brands is typically what people call it now. Right. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of the, the sports vernacular. And then, um, so prior to bases being, um, folded into Nielsen, you were there for, for a while working on that. And, and you, you know, pretty much just kind of continued on that track for a while. Um, can you talk about, you know, your move over into the uh, custom games section of Nielsen? Which yeah. I guess now is is your esports division, right? Yeah. So it's been um, it, it's been a bit of a journey, but um, it all it all makes sense. You know, going from pet food, which is what I was working on, to esports, really, if, <laughs> if you just looked at those two kind of polar ends of my career, wouldn't make much sense at all. But I promise, there's some logic to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was about three years into when I uh, started or working with bases and in that um, kind of package goods industry side of things that we as a company were looking at ways that we could expand those similar types of capabilities to the entertainment space. And it was a pretty explorational exercise. We formed a really small group of people. I mean, I think literally there were three of us. Um, We started that basically our job was to look at, um, to, to look at ways that we could just do what we were doing in package goods in the entertainment world because Nielsen obviously as a much broader company has a ton of ties and, you know, business connections. And I guess, you know, one thing to point out there is that was something that I heard that position was available and 
it was just like light bulb, like, oh, I can do what I'm doing, but not in pet food anymore. Like that sounds really <laughs> exciting. Um, what? Was really you don't want to focus on what my cat Zoe will eat? Yeah, I, hey, I'm a, I'm a pet person. I'm a dog person, but I can tell you that uh, there's, there's only so many things you can change in a dog kibble um, to make a new product. So I think after three years, I had seen most of that. Um, but um, no, so I saw this position come up and I was like, oh my gosh. And I basically rushed my application as soon as I could thinking there were going to be a million people applying for this. And, you know, there were a few, but it was really surprising to me. And I think it's a, a good lesson in kind of career management in general that, um, that more people weren't like into this idea of using what they, their existing tool set to explore a totally different area. And it's, it's kind of interesting looking back because as I look at the different moves I've made with a Nielsen, that's kind of what I've done every time. Um, so it was, it's been nice that I've been able to kind of find ways to evolve and expand what I do within the same company. And I, I think, you know, in the the broader context of this podcast and kind of women managing their careers, whether it's in sports or um, otherwise, like there's so many opportunities like that out there that I feel like are generally untapped. So that's going to be my, my big plug for kind of <laughs> taking ownership of things. Um, but anyways, back to what you asked. So we, we kind of came up with this um, group. We dabbled in everything. We were looking at websites, um, you know, doing consulting around websites, um, printers, cell phones, uh, movies, TV pilots, you name it. Just kind of seeing what stuck. And we got a couple of leads within video games and that stuck. It was around the time that the Nintendo Wii had come out. So um, there were all these gaming company, companies that all of a sudden were like, we've got this product that people are playing that aren't typical gamers. And like, what do we do with it? What, what type of, you know, games do we put out? Everyone was kind of scrambling and it really kind of turned the gaming industry on its head in terms of understanding the audience and knowing what the consumer going back to kind of what I said about why I got into this line of field in the first place, what the consumer wants. And so we found this really great opportunity to do all the same things we had been doing around product forecasting and talking to consumers to understand the potential of things, helping to optimize, but in the video game space. And and that is basically how our um, gaming consulting group was formed. When, so when I think of, and I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you. So when I think of, mm -hmm. you know, video games, I think of, you know, back in the day, Mario Kart. And yeah. like, I'm talking like your standard controller. And I'm that person who, <laughs> before the Wii was a thing, I, for whatever reason, my brain like could not, fully uh, get the fact that you had to use the like the controllers and like the little buttons that's what controlled everything and so like I would be like jumping off the couch to the right to get it to go and you know yeah. like I'm an idiot and it's fine I'm, I'm totally aware of the things that I am not good at and video games is one of them and um you know, so when we came, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be so good. And I remember, you know, it was all I wanted. And I think my boyfriend at the time got it for me for Christmas. And then like a month later, we're like, okay, we're bored. <laughs> what yeah, are we doing? It's, gonna, it's just going to sit under our TV stand. Now. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, 
fast forward a few years and you start list, you start hearing about these, you know, people who are communicating with people across the world while they play these games that are, you know, shoot 'em up type games. And, and, you know, it conjures the, you know, guy in the basement of his mom's house. But then it turns into this giant, you know, industry that in the last five years, I think, has just completely transformed and caught every, you know, a lot of people off guard by the big money that's being thrown at it. Yeah. Um, lot was it last year? Um, you all started a new division called Nielsen Esports to really formalize um, some of the metrics that mm-hmm. that needed to to come into place. Can you talk a little bit about how that kind of came about and and why it was necessary? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, and kind of tying to the end of the last question. So I worked in our just general games team for almost 10 years um, and and the industry just changed tremendously over that period of time. When I started, um, mobile gaming was literally brick breaker on your BlackBerry. And by the time I finished, we were doing, you know, tests of new games for major mobile gaming uh, platforms in the same way we would for a triple A console game. So just kind of, you know, it just speaks to, again, how quickly um, the, the industry develops and esports is another great example of that. Um, obviously wasn't something that we were playing in back 10 years ago when we started the games team. But um, like you said, over the past few years, we really started to get a lot of interest on two sides of things with the Nielsen. So first our kind of typical endemic gaming clients. So all the people, all the companies I was working with, gaming publishers, hardware manufacturers, service providers, um, basically trying, you know, wanting to understand more about the esports audience and fan, um, but then also just more about kind of what their place could be in the esports ecosystem. Because like you said, there's a lot of investment going in, a lot of attention, um, and just a lot of eyeballs watching that content. Um, but we were also getting a lot of interest from our sports side of the business. Um, and, and that's really where esports starts to differ pretty dramatically from general gaming is the idea that there are events around all these competition or all these um, different games that are being played as an esport. There are leagues and those are more and more starting to look like traditional sports in terms of both their structure, but also, and importantly, the sponsorship dollars that are coming in to ultimately support and grow them. Um, And so we started to get a lot of inquiries um, on the same types of work that our sports team was doing around understanding the value of sponsorships within live events. So basically, if if you're a brand and you put your logo on the World Cup rotating LED around the pitch, um, what's the value associated with the exposure you're getting from being um, on that board? And by the way, I think there's a game going on right now, but I promise I'm not keeping track of the background of what the score is. Uh, you're totally fine and I'm not watching, but my, my Twitter thing is kind of in the background and people are not happy with France. That's all I know. Oh, interesting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Anyways, so so back on track there. Um, so the the same types of sponsorship integrations were starting to happen in esports, and there really wasn't a clear way of understanding how much those should cost, how much value was being delivered when those sponsors were integrated into broadcasts um, and clients were coming to us and saying, well, you help us in sports. Can you do the same thing in esports? So we had these two different areas, both, you know, strong businesses um, for Nielsen separately, but with esports becoming important questions client were, clients were asking, we really took a look and said, you know, is there more power in creating an esports vertical or business unit and having people completely focused on that versus continuing to just kind of work through our individual games and sports teams to work with clients on it? And we took a look at it and the decision was absolutely yes. You know, having... Um, a team that number one, their expertise is esports, and number two, they're breathing it, um, living it day in day out. To us, was super important, and so ultimately, that's um, that's that's where I'm at now. I'm leading our esports team and doing a lot of work with um, companies and um, and you know all of our different clients around. You know, the the majority of what we're doing is around sponsorship in some way, shape, or form. Um, and you know, you you asked about the importance of it. I think the the key thing is there is big investment coming into esports, but a lot of people who are investing and especially brands who are looking to invest in or, or get into the space are also looking for some accountability in terms of, you know, knowing what they can expect from a return. Um, you know, I always say if a brand is investing in esports, they're taking that money from somewhere else. It's, you know, nobody these days just has money fall out of the sky to be able to put into new things. They've got to pull it out of a safe, something they view as safe and put it into something that right now, you know, esports, I wouldn't necessarily call it risky, but it's just new and, and different and kind of new territory for for them. So making them feel good about that and having data that they know they can look back on to see exactly how things perform in the same way they would sports sponsorship was really important. One question that I probably should have started off with, and I realized as we're talking um, that maybe some of our listeners don't know is what is Nielsen and what does Nielsen, you know, generally do? That probably would have been a good place to start. <laughs> um, although we, we, if you started with it, I may have still been answering the question. So I'll try to, <laughs> since I know we're partway through already, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, I mean, at its core, Nielsen is a measurement company. The, the way that people most commonly know Nielsen is Nielsen TV ratings, right? So we're the ones that the, the morning after, um, you know, TV programs happen, they were reporting audience numbers and, and we have become the common currency um, for TV broadcast. Uh, that That's one part of our company, but certainly the way people know us best. Um, we really kind of have two sides to us, what we call the watch and the buy side of things. Um, so, you know, talk about, we talked earlier about consumer packaged goods and the work that we do with those kind of brands and the grocery, you know, fast moving grocery space. Um, that is our buy side of the business. And then our watch side of the business is basically, you know, helping to measure what people consume um, from a content standpoint. And so that, of course, includes TV, but it also includes online telecom um, and the part of the business that I'm involved in, which is entertainment. Um, and, and, you know, we look at everything. We look at music, sports, books, film, um, and, and then obviously for me, games. So Nielsen, Nielsen is big, um, right. but... Esports within Nielsen um, is, is a smaller group, um, but a growing one. 
So um, thank you for that, by the way. And I, I just was like, uh, maybe some of the listeners aren't going to know. I know because I work in it. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned sponsorship and return and there's, there are a lot of differences between a sponsorship with say a baseball team versus a sponsorship with, um, you know, within an esports league or even team, and um, you know how the unique challenges that brands have with sponsorship in esports. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, definitely. Um, so I'd say you know a, a few things that are different is number one esports by the nature of and and this may be another area where depending on kind of how uh, how knowledgeable the audience is I can try to interject a couple of um, things here so esports um, competitive video gaming has really evolved as a digital first um, media. So basically the the vast, vast, vast majority of esports events, tournaments, leagues that people are watching, they're watching it online. Um, and, and so because of that, one of the things that has really developed uniquely about esports is the fact that it's really a global first um, sport. If you think about the fact that content is broadcasted online, that means someone in France is going to be sitting watching the exact same broadcaster, um, the exact same stream as someone in the U.S., as someone in Germany, as someone in Korea. Um, and so when you think about it in that way, I really you know, that, that has an impact on which brands invest and how they're thinking about the return that they're getting. We're getting a lot of questions now from brands, certainly, you know, for a brand that is an international brand, you know, I think Coca-Cola is a great example. They're an international brand with a single branding um, across all those countries and what more efficient of a way uh, to reach your consumers than through a global broadcast. Um, but when you start to look at regional brands, for example, they need to be a little more mindful of which part of esports they're investing in and where they're spending their money to ensure that they're actually reaching people who can buy their products. Um, so I think that's one really interesting angle. Um, the second, and and I would argue probably the biggest reason that we've seen so much investment so quickly in esports is just the audience. So esports fans are the vast majority millennials and males, um, and and that's obviously um, you know the the audience that is becoming more digital native, um, higher rates of cord cutting, and so when you think about advertisers or sponsors trying to reach those people, the fact that they're spending in many cases, a lot of time weekly viewing esports content in some way or shape or form is a really makes that a really attractive place for brands to spend. But obviously, you know, if you're thinking about contrasting that versus traditional sport, um, it's a different audience, both in terms of demographics, but also in terms of the type of content they like, how to reach them, you know, the, the type of tone that you use when you're um, doing an integration and broadcast, that sort of thing. So it also requires some real thoughtfulness around kind of how you're positioning your brand, if your brand is even the right fit and how you're building that relationship with those fans so that they don't just think you're slapping your logo on something. They really think that you have a role to play in being a sponsor in their favorite event team or league. Um, I think another challenge that I've read about and, and maybe this will get into how Nielsen is working on 
you know, actually measuring these things is um, there, there seems to be a longer term play going on with esports and, and sponsors, you know, may want a more immediate ROI um, return on investment, uh, or at least, you know, proof of, um, you know, a return in a, in a quicker fashion than five, 10 years out. Um, can you talk about how you're helping um, to kind of measure those things, but also what that is meaning in terms of, you know, how sponsors are, are feeling about getting into this space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it, it really kind of relates to one of the first things when we're working, especially with brands that we ask is, why are you getting into esports? What's your goal? Um, and, and making sure that they establish that up front, because you're right, if they're looking to increase sales among millennials by 40% in the next three months, like maybe that's not the, the right way to be thinking about um, an engagement. But if you're looking to build a relationship with um, that demographic or, you know, increase your brand loyalty or their, your, the brand affinity for that particular product, over time and you're willing to invest in the fact that you have to you know, build that relationship, develop content that's really going to resonate with them. And, and like I said, not just throw a logo on something that I think, um, you know, that I, I think that's where brands are really more successful is when they think about it as, you know, resonating with that audience longer term. Um, I think the, the one thing, or, you know, esports has done a number of great things. I think um, one thing that I've seen a lot of improvement in over the past year or two is just kind of right-sizing um, of sponsorship packages um, and, and also just kind of more transparency around the value that companies are getting. So I think you're right that a lot of the brands that invested really early were probably doing that on a very kind of emotional, aspirational side of things. And if they... Um, did that and realized that they weren't necessarily going to get, you know, 10 times return on their investment from that first, um, from that first sponsorship, then they stuck with it. And, and it made sense, I think, for those that were willing to take the chance early, but wanted to see those crazy numbers right away, they, they probably have pulled back. So um, I, I, but I do think that, you know, kind of more recently and, and partly become because of some of the data that we and, and others have been able to put out there, that's really kind of creating um, a currency around the investments in esports. I think we're starting to see things right sized a little bit more and, and certainly a lot more um, reporting back on what values are, if values aren't reached, making good on them or really, you know, collaboration between partners to make sure that the the program is improving moving forward. And so how are, how are you working on the measurement aspect? Um, you know, I, I think a few years ago, there were, you know, oh, you're getting more people watching this, you know, I don't know, tournament, esports tournament, um, than the World Cup, and and how do you, how how does that get measured? And and so that's something I know that that you all have worked on in trying to figure that out, um, you know, which then carries over into the sponsorship aspect. Um, it, what has it been like trying to develop that? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first thing is the esports broadcast landscape is not easy. Um, and that's partially because of what I mentioned that, you know, it's this digital first world where um, there are multiple, there can be multiple streams going on of one individual broadcast um, and, and often are and those streams can be on different channels in different countries or it can be the same channel, but multiple languages. Um, for different countries, um, it's 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 just more complicated. There aren't these kind of well, there there are to some extent, but these one to one media rights deals that are really commonplace um, in the traditional sport landscape are certainly not commonplace in esports, and so that creates challenges just in terms of. Um, you know, certainly as a measurement company, Nielsen being able to um, measure audience appropriately and account for the overlap across all the different uh, broadcast streams and that sort of thing. But it also leads to those types of situations, like you said, where if, you know, you have a bunch of different data points from a bunch of different broadcasters and they're not all counting things in the same way or talking the same currency that you can get to these really large numbers that in some cases just aren't accurate or true reflections of audience and certainly not comparable to what we as Nielsen would say, you know, like a TV rating is, which is what any other traditional sports program that you're comparing esports to would ultimately be reported in. And so one of the things that, um, that we've really been working with the industry on is um, looking at just consistency around how to count viewership, how to report viewership, um, get, doing away with things like there were you know, 26 million unique viewers of this event over the course of a weekend because the measurement around how a unique viewer is actually counted is so loose and, and obtuse and getting more to something like the average viewership that's going to be more akin to Nielsen. Um, and, you know, our feeling is that, you know, certainly we're in the process of working to measure East sports in the same way we do television. Um, so at some point there's going to be, you know, that those direct comparisons and we want to make sure that when that happens, we aren't going from these really big numbers that quite late, quite frankly, just aren't useful in terms of kind of overblowing the, the size of the esports audience to something that is more comparable um, to, to what we would see for other program types. We, we don't want that to be a shock to the system. We want to make sure that there's transparency and consistency. So we're doing, laying a lot of that groundwork right now. And um, the great thing is, you know, the industry is receptive to it. They, they see, um, the importance of behaving like traditional sport, <laughs> or at least um, in, in some aspects, you know, right. sports also has some great unique things that traditional sport could probably learn from too. But, you know, there's that, that element of consistency, especially when you go back to the fact that brands are investing across both of those areas is really important. Well, and, you know, with the brands used to the, the you know, the more tangible assets and activations, right? And, and having that hard data you know, if you are are blowing up these numbers and the return isn't matching up, you know, it, it's not good from a relational standpoint on either part, right? Because then the brand's going to be like, well, you're really underperforming here um, from the return side. And then, you know, the true measure of a, a good sponsorship is whether or not you're able to renew it. and if the, if the leagues or the teams aren't able to renew those sponsors um, because it appears as though they're underperforming, then that's not going to be good for the industry generally. 
Yep, I totally agree. And I would say, you know, to some extent, that's even more important in esports where there are a ton of brands waiting in the wings to see how others are performing. And a, a lot of those brands are kind of looking for a reason to doubt um, because there is still just a lot of misconception or just kind of lack of overall um, understanding of esports and, and a lot of that is because esports is complicated and you know there's really crazy structures in place and it's not exactly comparable to a traditional sport and so there's there's a little bit of skepticism in terms of you know should I put my money into something that I don't myself fully understand and so when brands are looking at their peers and seeing how they perform you know every time there's a you know a deal that doesn't go well or that doesn't get renewed it's certainly going to make other brands think twice which is of course the exact opposite of what everyone in the industry is hoping for. And I think that brings up another interesting aspect of esports is that a lot of the sponsorships you are seeing are are not necessarily the same types of brands that you see in traditional sports. And it, I feel like a lot of those stalwarts in in your you know football, baseball, basketball have kind of just kind of waited and mm-hmm. and are waiting to see how some of these other um, brands work out. I mean, I saw, you know, State Farm apparently is, you know, one of the insurance companies that's actually done something within esports. Um, but you're not seeing a lot of those, you know, old school brands doing that quite yet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think there's really a, a few different reasons for it. And if, when you talk to brands um, across some of those categories, they they all have some combination of things that is is maybe holding them back. I think part of it is, uh, like I was speaking to a little bit earlier, the education side of things and just not fully um, understanding, especially the kind of um, what I would call core esports titles, which are basically non-sports titles, um, esports right. sports games are kind of just, you know, there's starting to be a lot more movement there um, and and more formalized leagues being created. But, you know, the traditional esports titles are... MOBAs like a League of Legends or um, shooters like a Counter-Strike or strategy like a StarCraft. And and those are hard games to understand if you don't know them and play them. And so I think um, for for some of those brands that, um, you know, are investing a lot of dollars in traditional sport, if you... you know, you can understand a lot of traditional sport or the other way to think about it is a lot of the investments that you do see from companies in traditional sport is because they have some sort of like connection or personal interest in um, in that sport and obviously see, you know, the opportunity from the audience size standpoint as well. But if you think about it from that standpoint, it's, it, it's been a little bit harder to get some brands to invest in something that they're just not completely clear on, um, which kind of goes to, um, you know, what I was saying about newer titles being a little bit more sports focused. So for example, the NBA 2K league, um, started this May. So a new um, esports league around the NBA 2K game. It's basically a joint venture between 2K games, the publisher of the game and the NBA. Um, and we we really haven't seen very high viewership, um, as, especially compared to you know a number of other kind of established esports titles for that league. But we have seen a lot of what we would call non-endemic um, sponsors. So basically... Um, brands that are not gaming related in some way, shape or form 
investing in sponsorships with either the league or the teams, um, more so that we've seen for some really big popular esports events and leagues. And I think there's that comfort level there, right? In terms of, I understand basketball and that's ultimately what's being played, even if it's via a video game. And I'm also, you know, for a number of these brands working with the NBA partners and comfortable with who I'm investing in as well, in terms of kind of, you know, trusting the, where my dollars are going and having that established relationship. So I think that's, you know, that, that's been a big thing that esports has had to continue to try to overcome is um, just more familiarity and comfort that the brands have. Sure. And I, well, and I think with something like NBA 2K, um, it, it's easier to envision and to naturally and organically um, work with assets. So um, for listeners who you know, are, are not um, in sports. An asset is kind of like, you know, you can where you're putting signage or um, it's like, it's that the marketing stuff that they get, you know? So it's, you know, you get some seats, you get, you get signage in different locations, you know, maybe uh, an in-game promo or something like that. Right. And so for NBA 2K, it, that's easy because you actually know, like you're living it every day at a, a physical game, right? So you're able yep. to say, okay, you're going to have signage along the court here. And, you know, the, um, the timer, the shot clock is going to have your logo here. And it's the same asset digitally. Whereas yeah, exactly. in like, I, I literally have no idea what these games are, but <laughs> you know, Overwatch or League of Legends, whatever, yeah. um, it, it, to fit into that environment in a manner, well, A, in a manner that isn't going to piss off all the players. Yeah. Um, but also to, for people who've not, you know, because when have you been inside an Overwatch, you know, Overwatch game, <laughs> you know, like, so to to be able to find those spaces where they can think about it. I mean, for it is really difficult, right? Um, for me, the difficult thing is, why the hell do people pay so much money to watch this shit? And <laughs> and so you know that. And I've had this discussion with a um, a friend of mine who is at Activision Blizzard as one of the mm-hmm. um, one of their in-house counsel, and he was at. I don't know if he was at a con or if he was at a <laughs> an actual like event because even it, at least in the United States the events haven't become quite a big thing yet. Um overseas you hear about these stadiums being filled, right? Um but he was there and he's like, "Oh yeah, sends me pictures of people dressed up." And I'm like, yeah. "I don't understand this." He goes, you don't have to, you know, all you have to know is that people are willing to spend yeah. money on this. They're there. Yeah. And, and so I can understand how brands would have a hard time because, you know, we're thinking of ourselves and what we would spend money on. And so it's hard to kind of take ourselves out of ourselves. Yeah, I mean, at the at the end of the day, there are very few brands where a 24 year old male is making decisions on how to spend a million, you know, multi million dollar sponsorship budget. So you do kind of have to take yourself out of um, kind of out of that 
mindset, that traditional mindset to open things. I mean, I've been, I've been in many debates um, where people are going back and forth about is esports a sport or not, and you wouldn't believe how heated the conversation is. And I just kind oh, of let oh, people I would go back it. and forth. <laughs> <laughs> I let people go back and forth, and then at the end, I say. The fact is it doesn't matter because what's happening is people are watching this content and the people that they are watching are influencing them. And if you think about it that way, like you can label it whatever you want. It's an opportunity to reach these people in a place, in a setting that they are extremely engaged. They're hungry for content. They, they want to consume more and more of this. They want to learn more about the game, the people playing the game, the league. And when you think about it like that, who cares what it's called? There's an opportunity there. Need to go back to school but can't find the time with your busy schedule? Florida International University has 20 years of excellence in online education. Their master's degrees programs are designed to meet the demands of busy professionals and offer flexibility for family obligations. FIU online students can also take advantage of high-impact opportunities that lead to success and leadership skills. Check out their website for more information at fiuonline.com slash podcast. That's fiuonline.com slash podcast. One of the reasons you want to know, like, is it a sport or is it not a sport? From a brand perspective is they want to know how to categorize the spend, right? Yep. The marketing spend. And there's no, you know, it's a gray area in some people's heads. Now that you've got the traditional leagues jumping in, it's moving more, I think, over into that. Um, But yeah, you've got, you know, the one guy playing that on Twitch has millions of followers and he's making a million dollars a month. Like he's going to have influence on people. And so that's, you know, one of the reasons why people are putting money behind it. Um, But I think that that's also a reason why there's a little concern in the esports space because it it is very individual focused, right? Mm-hmm. And and we've seen and and heard um and read maybe not the best things from some of these players, right? Um it if we take it back to kind of like Gamergate and the fact that there's a lot of racism and homophobia in the esports community and, and brands tying themselves to that, um, it becomes a little problematic. Yeah. Um, I, and I, again, kind of going back to the conversations we have with brands, there's definitely this concern or, you know, a hesitation in terms of, I'm going to put my money behind something, especially when you look at like team sponsorships, I'm going to put my money behind um, kids basically, right. That don't have, um, you know, they're, they're 18 years old. The, by the time you're 24, you're kind of at the end of your esports um, career, just in terms of literally the dexterity of your fingers um, and how quickly they can move. So if you think about it from that standpoint, it's, these are young kids. Um, now, of course, there's that and, and becoming more and more that every year in the traditional sports side as well. But 
I think there's also kind of more confidence in the the leagues and the regulation in place in traditional sport, um, at least for some brands that they feel like there's a safety net there. Um, and, and so I think esports is starting to see that. And that's why you see, you know, Overwatch League, they built this league from the ground up. They have the franchises that can buy in. And there were a handful of small things like that that came up over the course of the league this year. And the league had rules to deal with it. And they had penalties um, for people that, you know, they feel felt like acted inappropriately or said things and, and they took care of it. And so I think esports is starting to see, I mean, the same things that you hear from people that I hear from people and in terms of, you know, why investments are a little bit slower, why there's hesitance on the brand side, all these teams and leagues are hearing it as well. And and they really are starting to realize that, you know, there's, there's certain things that need to be in place to build more confidence. Um, so I, I think that is all only getting to get better over time in terms of kind of, you know, making sure that that brands are not putting too much risk into any one individual. Um, but it, of course, remains, um, you know, it, it's something that they should think about and is definitely a fair concern. Um, and yeah, I mean, Gamergate, it, it happened. It's part of the community. That doesn't mean that the publishers or leagues support that. And in fact, I think, you know, back when all that happened, publishers came out pretty loud and clear in, in terms of not, but there's, you know, certainly things that are going to pop up or, or be undertones or that some people are going to feel. And I think the industry just has to be ready to react appropriately when they do. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I, I think it's similar to, traditional sports where for a very long time and still sometimes now women in particular aren't accepted into the community. And um, they're, they're ha you know, trying to change that, right, is really difficult um, because it's a, it's a cultural issue in our world anyway you know, women being sure. accepted into spaces and places and, and, um, and when it comes to esports, you know, things are, are typed, right? So there's a record of it as opposed to, you know, just kind of subtly, not so subtly, whatever, keeping people out of a physical space. Um, what have you seen or, or what are you thinking in terms of how to make those spaces um, more friendly or, or really just to be more accepting. I mean, it's, it has to be a little difficult even for you um, when you go out and speak about esports, being a woman and, and there being, you know, people who are as, quote unquote, old school as you can get in mm -hmm. gaming, you know, that, that don't see you as the avatar, basically, for gaming. Yeah, um, I know. I, I always say I went from games to then a mix of games and sports, which if, if you go to any conference or event around either of those two industries, um, you're going to mostly see males in the room. So I kind of uh, combined those two. Um, so it's it's definitely a reality um, of, of the industry. And I think, you know, women in esports is a 
it's a really complicated topic in terms of debates around what's the best way to create more equality and inclusiveness and and that sort of thing. I think unlike traditional sport, the trickiest thing is, you know, traditional sport, just from a pure physiological perspective, you know, it makes sense to have different leagues for men versus women in terms of, you know, strength and muscle mass and all that good stuff. That's just part of our genetics. Um, in esports, really, theoretically, men and women should be on an equal playing ground in terms of the, you know, skill base that they have or the, you know, what they would need to do to train from being someone who plays video games in their bedroom to becoming, you know, a world-class gamer. Um, but the reality is from an opportunity standpoint, it's it's just not equal. And I think the the kind of biggest part of that starts at a very early level. You know, people that are becoming professional gamers, they have gamed for a long time. It's what they spend all of their time on. Um, and when you think about especially a lot of these games that are clan-based, where you're playing with a group of people, you build a clan and you play with them for multiple years and kind of advance through different competitions. Um, it starts there, right? It's hard as a female to be part of a male clan when you're a bunch of 12 year olds or 15 year olds and, you know, friend groups are gender based. And so if you think about that, I mean, that's where it all starts is, um, when people start playing more seriously, when people, you know, how accepting people are, it's in that kind of teenage years. Um, and that's a really hard, you know, then battling five years through trying to kind of make up for that over time. That's really hard for female um, esports aspiring athletes to, to try to um, fight against. Um, and then, you know, layer into the fact that, like you said, there's, um, you know, females in, in one sense, you know, people might say, okay, it's digital. You can, make up an avatar, you can remain anonymous, but everyone uses voice chat these days. So the minute a female speaks up um, on chat, people are going to know she's female. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of cyberbullying um, when when that occurs. And it, it's just so unfortunate. And if you're a female, just, you know, finding the hours in the day to play to become a professional um esports player is hard enough, but then trying to overcome all of that on top of it, it's, it's really, really hard. Um, there's a big debate now on, you know, should there be women's only leagues or not? And on one side of things, you know, people are saying, no, that's just kind of creating, that's, that's feeding into some of the dynamics that we're seeing in the industry, right? Where if males are adverse to playing against females, well, let's just create a league for females. Well, that's not really the right way to handle it. But at the same time, you also need to allow females the opportunity to play at a competitive level. Um, and if they're not getting that organically, how are they ever going to break through into the top ranks if there's not a safe place for them to, to play and compete and grow? So it's, it's really a huge debate in the industry right now. I had an interesting conversation with someone recently about this and, and he was saying, you know, maybe you, you do, you come up with um, different leagues, you know, one for uh, men, one for women, one that's maybe co-ed or one that's LGBTQ. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it goes back to like, it harkens back to like separate but equal, right? Right. And, yeah. And that's like, what do you do at the end? Do you have all those play against each other to see which group wins? Because that completely defeats the purpose of unifying in every way. So, right. yeah, I agree. Right. There's that. There's, you know, are you, are you giving sponsors an opportunity to show their unconscious bias 
right? And right. and for for everything to skew, you know, and money to flow more towards the male sport, like male leagues, quote unquote. Um, yeah. And this is a this is a question that I think, from a diversity standpoint overall, with with traditional sports as well, is something that you can that you kind of have to figure out like, okay, do how, how do we do what's right overall versus what's right in the short term to help get people involved. Right. And it's, I don't think there are any easy answers with it. Um, But it's an opportunity to, to maybe fix or, or come up with a system at the outset, that's better long-term, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, we're still early in the the esports trajectory. So there's certainly an opportunity to, you know, improve upon the, the current environment and also to experiment. I mean, that's the great thing about mm-hmm. digital content and format and media, right? It's it's easy to set up leagues online. I mean, I say easy, I'm sure I'll, each of the individual, you know, <laughs> leagues and, and publishers are probably like rolling their eyes at me, but relatively so versus, you know, a completely physical environment. Um, so, so like, I think, you know, we'll see some experimentation and I think that's all good. And, and I think, you know, the nice thing there is you'll see females. I think there's different females who are more or less comfortable with each of those situations too. There's, there's some who maybe do want that kind of female first environment. And I know there's a number of those that have cropped up recently that are being created for and by females. Um, so there's, there's obviously a demand there, at least at the amateur level for that sort of environment. And, and then, you know, I think in terms of the more, a more integrated approach, ultimately it's on the publishers um, in terms of kind of enforcing, you know, whether it's chat rules or, you know, kicking people out for, um, you know, doing something disparaging or whatever it may be. Like it's going to have to start at that level. Um, And it's going to take really the fans and, and gamers who don't feel that way to come and support and, and defend the females who are experiencing that. Not unlike, you know, some of what we saw in the Me Too movement. So sure. um, it, I, it will really take everyone. It, it can't just even as much as I believe in and, and know that females are going to do everything they can to, you know, succeed as best they can. It, it's going to take the full community. For sure. And I, you know, I, I want to thank one of our listeners who um, tweeted a question to me, which was about the gender breakdown of players and, um, one of the things that she pointed out is that she heard that NBA 2K, it's 100% male. That's correct. Yes, there there are no females in the NBA 2K League. Um, there was one in Overwatch League. Uh, the top 100, yeah, the top 100 esports earners um, globally, there's not one female on the list. So there is, I mean, I think I saw a stat, it was maybe from a couple of years ago, that there's like a 718% um, difference in salary between male and female esports players. So um, it, it runs pretty deep. Um and part of that, I mean, there's a bit of fan. So, you know, esports fans skew male. You're yeah. in the 70 to 80% male. Um, but there's also a chicken and the egg, right? Um, if, if it's 100% males playing, then you're probably going to draw a more male audience. So um, there's, yeah, there's a lot of different layers to it. Sure. Um, and then an additional layer that I'm going to add on top of it now to make it, you know, seem even worse. So I apologize <laughs> in advance, but... You know, we've seen this with traditional sports where 
um, if player, if, you know, the opportunity within the business side of the sport can often mirror what the the player side looks like. So if it's all men playing it, you know, you, you often have a lot of all, all men in business. I mean, it just, there are opportunities Mm -hmm. for players to move into business and to have a unique um, viewpoint of the business. And if the only players that are being recognized are male, then those opportunities are also only going to be for men. Um, We see that in coaching when it comes to, you know, traditional sports. Right. Um, And so it's something that I bring up because I, you know, when we do talk about these layers, I want to make sure we're thinking not just the short-term layers, but the, you know, longer term, which none of that makes sense because onions don't have long-term or short-term, but it's fine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I I totally agree. Um, And I think all the more you see a lot of because esports players, like I said, quote unquote, retire from gaming so early that most of them, their next natural step is to move into the industry ecosystem in some way. So whether they end up being on like the management side of for a team or coaching, like you said, or becoming shoutcasters or just becoming streaming personalities on Twitch and making hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is completely possible these days, um, which is just crazy. Um, that that's certainly going to, you know, continue to, to feed that. And you're right. It's a little concerning that, that it, it creates less opportunity to break the cycle. If that's, you know, kind of how people are feeding in. Um, you know, I, I definitely do want to mention there's certainly a number of really great efforts going on in the space right now. Um, Intel and ESL have partnered together to, um, you know, work on, supporting uh, women in gaming um, and, and have really, you know, Intel's been pretty bold and outright. They've supported esports across the board, but have really been one of the big first ones to step up and say they're going to put serious effort and money um, behind things. You see, you know, a number of female teams that are forming being managed by females um, and, and then those females feeding into larger organizations that, um, you know, that those teams fall under. So there's certainly pockets out there um, and And I think, you know, it would be really interesting. We at Nielsen, we look at all the time, you know, the studies where looking at the success of companies that have more females um, in leadership versus don't. And I'd Mm -hmm. love to kind of see five years from now in the esports space doing a retrospective to see um, the same thing from both a team and an industry standpoint. I know the um, uh, HBSE, uh, the Sixers organization, um, they have... um, a woman in leadership on their gaming side. Yeah. Um, Team Dignitas. Yeah. Um, and yep, and yep, she used yeah, to be a player. Um, yep, exactly. Uh, so that's, re- that's really cool um, to see. And, you know, um, and that'll be that you're right. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see how that evolves. And, and again, you know, we're in the basically first decade of this, whereas, you know, when you look at your traditional sports, we're looking at a hundred years. <laughs> For right. a lot of them. So um, there's the ability to make um, change quicker now, thankfully. And, yeah. um, you know, hopefully um, we'll see that continued movement. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, back one 
thing that I wanted to ask you about on the sponsorship side. Um, sure. We've in the industry seen um, the beginning stages of a movement uh, with sponsors wanting to model their deals differently. Um, the Anheuser-Busch um, organization is one of them where they, they want their deals to and models to look more um, performance-based. And, and by that, meaning like team performance-based. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> is that something that you think will carry over into esports? Um, I've got to imagine it's it's difficult even... I know part of me thinks it's going to be difficult to have those vice um, uh, sponsorships, but then part of me is like, well, you don't have any rules really over who can sponsor, so maybe you have more of those. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, honestly, the the landscape is still kind of relatively speaking, fairly young. So I think there's just a lot of kind of change and and volatility overall. Um, I think the the biggest thing in terms of kind of sponsorship packages looking different within esports, at least right now, is um, the mix of kind of traditional assets, like you said, broadcast assets or in-game assets or things like that versus um, original content and kind of the social, digital what you do outside of match day type activation. Um, That's where we're seeing a lot of difference in terms of how different partnerships are drawn up, um, where value is expected to come from. Um, So a lot of partnerships are, you know, there there maybe is a small patch on a jersey with a team, but the majority of value that the the team is delivering and, and promising to their sponsors is actually outside content. So when their players stream on Twitch, um, having the you know sponsored content from the brand or kind of original content that's created, you know, co-created between the brand and the team, that sort of things. Um, and it's it's been really interesting to kind of see that evolve. Like I said, there's such a hunger for it in terms of the esports fan base, but it's also, you know, different brands have different appetites for that and different kind of interest in running that themselves and creating that content and being really hands-on versus kind of handing that off to a team or a league and saying, you know, this is your expertise. I totally trust you with my brand. Of course, I want to approve everything, but I want you guys to kind of run with it. Um, So I think that's really in in terms of where we're seeing differences by brand. um, One of the the big trends within esports now, I think in terms of kind of performance-based versus not, I mean, certainly we're already starting to see more um, leagues, especially work delivery into the contract, right? So we guarantee you this many impressions. um, And if not, you know, we'll we'll make good or, you know, kind of having that in place. Um, We haven't seen as much of that true Budweiser, you know, in Hauser-Busch, like will pay depending on how you perform side of things, but esports is following a number of traditional sport trends. So it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, if that's the way um, things go there, if, if we don't see the same moving forward. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to those, those vice um, brands, so we're talking like tobacco, um, uh, alcohol, beer, mm-hmm. that type of thing, uh, marijuana, um, now that it's legal in a lot of states. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, with traditional sports, there there are fairly um, strict guidelines and rules um, about when, when you can broadcast, when you can't. Um, 
where you can place, you know, signage, basically. Like there are a lot of guidelines, whether you can or, you know, can even um, advertise, you, you have a sponsor with, I mean, tobacco, you can't um, mm-hmm. in many of these, right? So uh, are you seeing any of those leagues uh, create similar rules and guidance or are they at a stage right now where they're like, and the reason I ask this in particular with esports is because that audience is so young. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority being under the age of 21. Yes. So the first thing I'd say is the, the kind of stat that you just mentioned is a little bit of, in my opinion, a misconception of esports because I think um Gamers in general, you know, definitely trend on the younger side of things. Um, but when you look at the esports audience, it actually trends a little bit older than the general gamer. Now, I'll, I'll asterisk that by saying it completely depends by game. So we're seeing Fortnite, you know, huge success right now. They're going to Epic Games, the publisher is going to put $100 million into esports prize money in 2019. So we're going to see a lot of events, leagues, tournaments pop up around that title. That is skewing young. So, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, sensitivity around who is activating against and, and reaching that audience. But for a number of esports um, leagues and titles, we actually are not seeing quite as heavy of a skew toward teens. Um, the, the other thing that I always kind of say in that is teens follow traditional sports too. Um, if anything, I'd say there's actually a lot, probably oversensitivity right now in the esports industry to some of those brands activating or vice versa brands overly sensitive to activating in the space. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's cautious and responsible. Um, and, and, you know, certainly you want to make sure to do it right if, if you're going to do it, but we're just now starting to see, you know, alcohol brands um, start to, to get a little bit more involved in the space. Um, you, you mentioned Anheuser-Busch, they were really one of the first um, alcohol brands to activate, but they, because of, you know, how careful they are about only reaching an audience, Audience that's 21 plus in the U.S. Um, they just created their own league, so they have Bud Light All Stars, and they <laughs> are kind of owning that. Only ages 21 plus can participate, and they're really kind of, you know, they said we can control this, and esports is this kind of open. Um, you know, open playing field in terms of us being able to try new things, create our own league and kind of have that digital infrastructure set up. And they went for it. Um, They wanted to be involved, but they wanted to do it on their own terms. Um, So I think that's a kind of great example. Um, But I definitely have seen in terms of like league rules and that sort of thing, some of the same um, kind of um, blacklist uh, categories that that you mentioned for traditional sport and esports. So I think, you know, that that's something that the industry has really been pretty cognizant of, in my opinion. Yeah. Do you um, do you see gambling playing a role in uh, esports at all? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there's certainly been a lot of interest in information around it since the the ruling in the U.S. a couple of months ago. Um, you know, in in some senses, right now it is, um, but not in your traditional like you know, typical betting platforms. I mean, if you look at, you know, for example, in the UK, um, sports betting, esports is like a 0.00 something percent of that. So very small. But what you see a lot of is like skin betting in esports where people aren't exchanging money, but they're in chain, 
exchanging, you know, they're, they're betting some of their coveted in-game skins. A lot of times some of them are rare um, and trading them back and forth between people based on, um, you know, match outcomes and that sort of thing. So we actually, um, to, to be honest, because especially in the States, that wasn't really something that was legal. We haven't had a lot of data on it. We're in field right now for our annual esports study. And we have a number of questions around um, betting, which I'm really interested to get the data back because my kind of gut is that people kind of like that skins betting environment. Um, it's unique to esports. It's cool. In some ways, people are a lot more passionate about winning or losing these, you know, unique in-game items than they are just cash. So they may actually prefer to kind of keep that infrastructure versus going through an outside betting company and, um, and kind of working working, you know, the, the betting side of things that way. So um, it remains to be seen. I think for sure, given the rulings, it will increase. I think um, it probably will happen kind of slowly. And you've already seen a couple of like let state um, state level legislators that are excluding esports um, in the, the actual wording of things oh, that's from being, yeah. Um, I think, you know, a lot of it goes back to that kind of young age concern that people have yeah. and, and they're worried of kind of meddling in that space. So um, I think, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. It, it will increase, but I don't necessarily expect it to skyrocket. Like I think everyone is expecting um, sports betting to in the U.S. here in the next year. Yeah, sure. I, I, I think that makes sense as well. Um, and then one other, you know, hot topic, I guess, in, in this space is, so, um, does this become an Olympic sport? So that's a great question. Um, I mean, the so the IOC has been pretty clear in, in saying that it's something they're actively looking at. Um, there's actually a summit happening this month where they've invited a number of people from across the esports industry to um, kind of have a have a roundtable, have a number of different sessions, partially info gathering, I think partially probably opinion sharing um, and that sort of thing. Um, I think, you know, one of the things they've been really outright in saying is that they definitely will not include violent games um, in Olympic esports, which, um, you know, just full, you know, just kind of understanding the opportunity. Those are certainly some of the biggest esports titles right. out there. So while it looks like they're definitely um, actively and, and heavily exploring that path, that to me, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to become one of the biggest Olympic sports, because I think, you know, de depending on how, um, how selective they are in the games and which ones they allow in, they're not necessarily going to get the biggest games in the world um, on that stage. Um, I think it's, it's good. They, um, so Intel did the, um, the, the small event um, kind of around, but not officially a part of um, the Pyeongchang Olympics and did that with Starcraft. Um, and it sounded like the Olympics were really happy. They, they broadcasted it on the Olympics um, website and they sounded really happy with the results. So it seems like, you know, even from that one kind of small trial, they were effective in reaching that, young audience, right? That everyone's trying to gather, you know, try to find, trying to find ways to reach them and, and get their eyeballs back. Um, so if they have evidence that that's the case, then I'm sure, you know, that's something they'll continue to pursue. I think on the esports industry side of things, I've talked to a lot of people who are like, it would be great, but it's not like, I don't think anyone with an esports feels like being in the Olympics is necessary to validate it. I think everyone feels like, you know, esports has already arrived. The fact that the Olympics is even considering it is, um, 
you know, a, a pretty big deal. And I, I don't think that's going to like make or break the trajectory of esports over the next 10 years. Sure. Although I wonder if it does create a a bigger market or or drive for less violent games to be yeah. created, right? No, that's a good point. Or more kind of more substantial leagues to create feeders or, you know, more professionalization around some of those. That's true. It could definitely give those more of a platform. And, you know, then goes back to that parody. And, you know, if if you are potentially on the path to becoming an Olympic sport, you know, the Olympics is one of the biggest platforms for sport generally. It's how a lot of young kids are introduced to athletes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's so important to have that representation um, at the, you know, at the Olympics from people of all different um, types of backgrounds um, and, you know, male, female, racial, um, you know, from a sexual orientation, you know, all of it. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, hopefully, you know, there's a way to, to keep that at the forefront as, as esports potentially heads down that, that path. Yeah, that's a really great point. And it wouldn't surprise me if that's one of the things the IOC is kind of looking at in terms of, you know, whether to incorporate or, or not as kind of, you know, if, if there's a way to make sure that that representation is continued or if they feel like esports isn't the fit if, or, you know, isn't at that place right now, like what it would take to, to get there. Cause you're right. Um, that that's a huge part of the Olympic spirit. Um, I do think the kind of country specific we've, we've seen, you know, within esports, even though it's, there's, you know, teams have people from all over the world. Um, on their teams sometimes you do definitely see when there's teams that have more um, people from one one country or you know a team that practices in or is based in a particular country you do see some of that national pride come out even in these kind of mixed um these these mixed leagues so i think um we definitely would see you know people getting behind their home country in esports which would be kind of fun so. yeah for sure although like i just had the funniest thought which may or may not be funny to you but in my weird little brain it is Joe DeSena at Spartan Race is going to be so fucking mad if esports gets in before obstacle course racing. <laughs> it's going to be so mad. probably a, a number of people out there who are thinking that exact same thing. Um, yeah. I know he's been pushing real hard to try and get OCR in. And <laughs> I, I have uh, personal ties, like good friends who are are like, you know, in-laws with him. And, uh, and I've had a few people from the OCR world on, on the podcast and, you know, it, given his personality, uh, it would just, I kind of would want to be there the moment. Like I want there to be video. <laughs> the announcements made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Maybe they'll have to like tell him ahead of time to give him a, a, a fair warning. I, I mean, geez, that's yeah. But you know, it, it just shows like, you know, these different aspects of sport and, um, and sometimes it's just that explosive growth, right. That, that drives it. 
So yeah, exactly. Um, and again, I mean, it to me, it all goes back to the audience, and these are people that you know are harder and harder to reach, and people you know different sports, and that's why you see a lot of traditional sport um, investment in esports as well. It's you, maintaining audience and attention over the long term. Right. Um, you can't you can't argue the power that esports has there. So. Right. And I mean, even though the Olympics are are considered, you know, the you know, the biggest um, uh, watched, largest, most viewed events. I mean, over the past few years, even that, you know, they've had a bit of a decline. So um, it's again, making, um, giving the audience something that they want to watch, but, you know, also maybe providing it on different platforms, right? You could see NBC, you know, and, and Twitch, you know, maybe getting together or something like that, you know, like you're going to have to see some of that integration if you are including esports because people aren't going to their major broadcasters to watch an esports event. It's just not yeah, happening. Yeah, I mean, exactly. We've seen that Turner um, developed e-league and um, so they've got a number of different games and, and leagues that now kind of run under that e-league umbrella. And um, they, this year for their Counter-Strike programming, pulled everything onto Twitch through broadcasting. And they are a broadcast network and we're showing um, the content concurrently and decided based on viewership and consumer demand to move everything to digital. So if that doesn't tell you um, where that audience yeah. is and, and what the trend is, if a major TV broadcaster um, is, is making that move, then I don't know what does. And then who has, is that, is that a Facebook or a Google um, partnership that one of them has a partnership with Twitch, I feel like, and I can't figure out who. Um, so Amazon owns Twitch. Ah, there we go. That's it. Yep. Yep. One mm-hmm. of those three crazy companies. Um, yeah, exactly. And and then basically Google via YouTube and Facebook are, are really considered um, competitors now in terms of what they're trying to do to secure streaming rights for a number of esports broadcasts, sometimes concurrently to Twitch, sometimes exclusive to. Um, so that's, you know, definitely a big trend in the industry right now is what's happening around media rights and where that will go. Um, Man, my brain just goes off in like 3,000 directions uh, on all these topics. So I'm going to try and wrap it <laughs> because you have work to do. Uh, and I, I want to be able to let you go. Um, I will ask um, what, and I ask this of a lot of our guests, and that is, what do you do by way of self-care? Yeah, great question. Um, and and I admit, uh, with a four and two year old at home, I'm probably not the best at putting myself first sometimes, combined with uh, a full time job that requires a decent amount of travel. Um, but I think what I've what I've started to do a lot more is just um, find a way to get outside every day. Which part of that was also this the winter ending, which was just overly brutal, especially for Cincinnati this year. Right. Um, so finding a way, whether it's I, I just my husband actually just got me the AirPods, um, like headphones with, you know, no wires so that if I have a conference call where I can go outside and walk, like anything to get me away from the desk, but also just kind of 
connect with nature a little bit, be outside, um, get the fresh air. For me, that's one of the biggest things. We are really into hiking and camping um, and all that good stuff. So so anytime I can get fresh air, um, it, that helps a lot. Um, and, and honestly, being better about getting to bed on time too. Um, mm-hmm. To me, that's been, been lately even more important than getting exercise is just like if, if I get a good night of sleep, I'm a different person in the morning. So how many all easier said than done. Oh, but. for sure, for sure. I mean, yeah. even those of us who don't have kids. Um, how, um, how many hours do you need of sleep for you to be like optimal? I am really good on seven. I feel like a different person on eight. Um, if I get six and a half, I can get through a day pretty well. So, gotcha. <laughs> yep. And I can't nap anymore or else it completely sabotages my evening. So <laughs> that's kind of a bummer, but at least I'm aware. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most important parts, right? Is like, is knowing that and trying to, um, I don't know, hack your sleep, right? Figure out like yeah. what it is that's going to have a detrimental impact and what really helps you and and really focusing on on those things um, is important. We're big fans of sleep here on the podcast. Um, <laughs> I personally am at my best at nine hours. And- um, How often do you get that? Not very often. Okay. Um, <laughs> But I, you know, I am the type of person, and again, I recognize that I, you know, I I have the luxury of it just being me and a cat and not having to deal with anyone else when I go home. So <laughs> if I want to go to sleep at eight o'clock at night because I didn't sleep all the night before, I can. And, yeah. you know, unless there's something crazy going on at work um, where I really have to stay up. I mean, there's always work that can be done until midnight, but... You know, I yeah. also, I I also make the point of being like, you have to stop at some point because you will burn out. And yeah. so if I need to go home at five o'clock and, you know, be in bed by 730, like a child, uh, <laughs> I will do that. And, you know, but I try and be pretty good. I've been this week, I've been on vacation. So, uh, you know, I'm a little, little off kilter. I'm going to try and reset this weekend. but. It'll, it'll all be fine. <laughs> well, um, based on uh, today, and I'm sure all the work you're doing on the podcast, you probably only have vacation anyways. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it is what it is, but it's fine. It's being able to, I think for me, sometimes the best things about days off is being able to control and slowly, you know, get into your day and, yes. and take those moments for yourself. So, um, you know, that's, that's really been good for me this week and yeah. today. Dictating your own schedule goes a yeah, long way as opposed for sure. to having it set up for you. I for sure. <laughs> Although, yes, there will be email catch up from the day job today. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that'll make your Monday better. So. Yeah, for sure. And everyone's going to hear this next Wednesday and they're going to be confused, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> how can uh my listeners follow along um with you know what you're doing or just you generally um and Nielsen of course as well? Yeah, um I'd say I'm most active. I know everyone's kind of different in their their different social media tools they use professionally. I'm most active on LinkedIn in terms of sharing like the latest and greatest and anything I'm involved in, including this podcast. Um once you give me the go ahead. Um Ooh. but 
any articles we put out, things I contribute to, um, anything like that. We also have a Nielsen Entertainment um, Twitter handle that we put a lot of things, not just from um, esports and, and sports, although a lot of it is that, but also all forms of entertainment that that are really good too. So I'd say those are the two main things. And we, I mean, we've also been lucky just in general to be in the esports news a lot with a lot of the work we're doing with different clients and companies and that sort of thing. So um, for anyone who's looking at like a daily, I want to understand more about esports primer. I always tell people it's a super kind of basic hack, but setting up just a Google alert for esports news, um, it, actually is a really does a really good job of curating the top stories every day so I'd recommend uh, for anyone that wants to learn a little bit more about the industry just setting that up and um, you'll you'll get the top info coming your way that's actually such a good hack on like anything I do it for I have it for myself for the podcast for the organization that I work for and it's related properties and then um, if I'm ever um, in the interview stages or about to go into the interview stages for a new job, um, mm-hmm. I always add that organization and maybe one or two of the people there as well. That's um, smart just to see. Yeah. yeah. It really does a great job of kind of, I mean, I very rarely see something come through where I'm like, eh, that was not useful. So yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, listen, when you work for a sports organization, there's going to be stuff that you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but sometimes you're alerted to something that you're like, wait, what? What just, what? Right. Yeah. That happens to me sometimes. And I'm like, I'm going to text one of my PR people, something and ask them what that's about. Um, I shouldn't have found out about that through this article, but yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, well, thank you so much, Nicole, for being on. I really appreciate it. And I think, um, you know, you are our first esports related guest and you, Um, did a really great job of explaining a lot of the intricacies. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate you reaching out. Thank you again to Nicole for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation and all the things I learned about gaming. Um, Esports is such a strange little part of our sports world right now that it can be hard for me to get a grasp on it. Um, So I really do appreciate her time and make sure um, you all uh, follow along where she said to with that daily if you are interested in esports. Make sure you are also subscribing, rating, and reviewing. When you guys rate and review, do you know how much my heart goes pitter-patter? It makes me so happy. So if you could do that on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, RadioInfluence.com, that would be awesome and um make sure you're finding us on all the social media remember the she is challenge um hashtag she is challenge take a picture watching the uh any women's game um or being at any women's game and posting that and tagging at ltpf pod on facebook twitter or instagram and hashtag she is challenge that would be great i hope you all have a wonderful week This is a Jim Fannin Show Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Again, the average person has two, 3,000 thoughts every day, and that is rising. It's not decreasing. But when you're at your best, 
you've already created a blueprint. And so you're operating on a blueprint. That's already done. And now you've already seen the blueprint manifest in your mind. Now you just walk on that blueprint as if it's so fully engaged. From birth to five, you'll learn more in that 16 months than you will learn the rest of your life accumulative. That's a shocking stat. We discovered that in 1974. From birth to five, you learn more in that 60 months than you will learn the rest of your life accumulative. Why is that? It's because you're in the moment. Your awareness is fully heightened. You see anything and everything, and you question. Question marks one of the greatest symbols in the world. It happens every second by somebody on this planet. There's a question. Hey, what's up? (laughs) That's a question. What are you doing? A question mark. Question everything around you and then determine your own pathway. The Jim Fannin Show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.